Hi, this is Scott Walker here, and you're on our second podcast we've released. Last week was our first, and uh, I probably should explain the name first and foremost. Our podcast is called You Can't Recall Courage by Governor Scott Walker. The reason for that simple is when I looked at it, the mass of people and signs on the night of June 5th, 2012, the night we won our historic first ever, first ever time a governor won a recall election after all that we went through, I remember hugging Matt and Alex and my wife, Tunette, who had introduced me up on the stage and probably gave an abnormally long hug because I just felt it was such a tremendous relief, not so much for me personally, but for my family. You know, just the stress that it, Tunette with the protests, the 100,000 protesters in and around the Capitol, around the executive residence. And remember, we lived in Wauwatosa. Our kids were still going to high school, public high school at the time at Wauwatosa East and so the protesters around our home in Wauwatosa and all the other things, it really had put this unbelievable amount of pressure on not just me, not just my colleagues in state office, but really on Tanette and, and the boys and our family, my parents as well. And I remember that night after giving that big hug, I looked out there. One of my favorite pictures was all these signs for me and Rebecca Clayfish, our great, really remarkable lieutenant governor who had also won her own recall election that night. But one of them was a hand-printed sign. I think it was a, I remember right, it was a light blue background with kind of yellowish gold paint. And it said, you can't recall courage. And I think that's really what it was all about, was that we had done the courageous thing. We had inherited a $3.6 billion uh, structural deficit at the time. We'd, the previous governor, a Democrat, and the Democrats in the legislature had, you know, really raided from the transportation fund, raided from the fund that was set up to help uh, patients and families of people who'd be victims of medical malpractice. They, they'd taken money from other funds. They, they deferred and didn't pay the bill to the state of Minnesota and reciprocity. All these things. And so we put in place long-term permanent reforms, not just band-aids, not just duct taping things, but really fixing things. And it came out of my experience eight years having been the Milwaukee County Executive where I inherited a major, a major problem as well, a major budgetary problem. Uh, uh, the previous county executive, uh, in fact, I was the first Republican ever elected, had, had created this pension scandal. And so I'd, I'd been used to that before, and I knew I knew from having been in local government we needed to fix things on a long-term basis. That's exactly what we did. The big government uh, union bosses, the big government special interests didn't like that, not only here in Wisconsin, but really across the country. That's why it started out with protesters from Wisconsin and eventually grew and grew and grew, and suddenly we saw signs from unions from New York and New Jersey, Washington and Nevada and elsewhere across the country. Certainly those being flown in and bussed in, some coming up from Illinois, and which was a little bit ironic considering how messed up Illinois is. I mean, it's a state that doesn't even have a fully funded, even half-funded pension system. Uh, the unemployment rate back uh, in 2010 before I was elected was similar to ours. Ours was peaked out at 9.3%. The last year we've had 12-plus months in a row of record low unemployment, 3% or below. Never been that low before. It's been a year, 12 months in a row, at more people working than ever before. $3.6 billion budget deficit turned into surpluses every year we were in office and continues to be a strong point. Fully funded pension system, bond rating that was improved, upgraded by the national agency. So anyway, you can't recall courage. It's really about not so much my courage, but the courage of our state, that our, our leaders, Republicans in the Assembly and the Senate stepped up together with us and our, our great team in the administration, and just the courage of the electorate to say, hey, you know what, this guy actually did what he said he was going to do. And despite all the protests, we didn't back down. 
we did the right thing. So that's a little bit about this podcast and why it's called You Can't Recall Courage. Uh, on the lighter side of things, uh, this week is Summerfest. Uh, heading into the weekend, we'll be back there again. Tanette and I were there Wednesday night. Uh, we love going there. Uh, it's the second time I've seen Foreigner at Summerfest. We're going to see Chicago this weekend. Next week, my wife is super excited for us to go see Lionel Richie and Michael McDonald. We'll see a little bit of Loverboy on the night that the fireworks go off over Lake uh, Michigan. A lot of people may not know about this. If you're listening in from beyond the borders of Wisconsin, Summerfest, more than 50 years in the making, Summerfest is the world's largest music festival. It's on the shores of Lake Michigan, just off of downtown Milwaukee, which for us is nice because Tonette and I now have a condo only a few minutes away from Summerfest, and that's where we reside. And uh, just a, a, a ton of fun. Our kids are down there as well, and uh, we're looking forward to uh, really uh, loving and experiencing not just Summerfest, but the rest of the summer. It's a little bit a little cold earlier this, uh, earlier this spring, and uh, we're looking forward to a great summer. Looking ahead today, I want to talk about a couple different things. You know, last Friday, uh, I was hosting, uh, filling in for Mark Belling, who is a radio host on uh, Newstalk 1130 WISN in the Milwaukee area. And uh, Mark was off, so I filled in as I filled in a couple times for him in the past. And of all things, that day, we had a whole bunch of things we were talking about. Some of the things I'd mentioned last week's podcast, we talked about AOC and her ridiculous argument in favor of a congressional pay increase. We talked about the lieutenant governor, a Democrat in the state of Wisconsin, who had somehow hadn't paid his property taxes for last year and had missed the whole concept of installments and, and had all sorts of challenges. And eventually, last week before we did the podcast, he actually told a reporter was asking about this, the checks in the mail. Uh, pretty interesting argument. It's, it's kind of like saying the dog ate my homework. But we t were talking about all those things on the radio, and then uh, right in the middle of the broadcast, the new governor, Tony Evers, a Democrat from Wisconsin, issued four vetoes late on Friday afternoon. They were vetoing four pieces of pro-life legislation. <coughs> Excuse me. And it's just remarkable. I, I tweeted about this uh, on uh, Friday and then again did throughout the week. It, it's just sad. It's sad that protecting a child from death by abortion after that child's been born isn't worthy of being the law in Wisconsin. And, and the whole reason this came up, you might remember, was earlier in the year, back in January, uh, another Democrat governor, uh, Ralph Northam, the governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia, said something that I think was probably more revealing than he intended. He was asked on this, on this radio program in the D.C. market, I think it's something uh, like I and a lot of other governors have done in the past, kind of a, uh, a familiar process where you come in and kind of do a grab bag of different issues out there. Uh, Ralph Northam, uh, back on January 30th, said this. Uh, when asked about legislation that was being debated by the House of Delegates in Virginia, and they were asked to explain it, and he said, well, and remember this guy, <coughs> excuse me, it gets me choked up. This guy is a doctor, not just governor, but is a doctor by profession. He said the infant would be delivered. The infant would be kept comfortable. The infant would be resuscitated if that's what the mother and the family desire. And then a discussion would ensue between the physicians and the mother. That's really remarkable. Uh, I, I just can't even fathom that. I mean, this is this is how far this is the party that you know once Bill Clinton talked about nearly 25 years ago that abortion uh, should be safe, legal, and rare. Now it's it's on full demand till the not just uh, to the end of the pregnancy, but but literally you're talking about a child being born. Remember, 
He says the child, the infant would be delivered. The infant, which is the baby, would be kept comfortable. Now, why would you keep, you know, you, the debate used to be that uh, uh, when talking about abortion and the pro-life position, those who opposed that said, well, this isn't, uh, this isn't really a human being. It's no different than, uh, I think even Tony Evers, when running for governor, talked about this is no different than having your tonsils out. You've heard that sort of argument before, that this really isn't a human being. This isn't a baby. This is just a piece of tissue. Now the argument has gone so far that in Virginia, as we've seen elsewhere, but at least Northam was honest enough to say what it is, the baby's going to be delivered. The baby is actually alive. The, the, the infant would be kept comfortable. You, you don't keep a piece of tissue comfortable. You don't, an organ transplant, you don't keep the organ comfortable. Um, this is really all about exactly what's happening. And I said this back at CPAC earlier this year, and the left went nuts. But the fact of the matter is, if this same family waited a couple of hours and went home from the hospital and decided, well, you know, this, for whatever medical complications, whatever issues out there, we're just going to end the life of this newborn child in Virginia, and I believe just anywhere else in the country, they'd be charged with homicide. That would be illegal. That would be murder. It's not just infanticide. It's not just live birth abortion. It's murder. And, uh, you know, thinking about that, for me, it's been kind of timely this week, not just because the veto came up last Friday, but going into this weekend on Sunday, uh, Tonette and I are blessed with two wonderful sons. They're, they're both in their 20s. Our oldest, Matthew, is going to be 25 on Sunday. Matthew, for us, some of you may know this, others may not, but Matthew ultimately comes from, the base of the name Matthew comes from uh, a word that in Hebrew means a gift from Yahweh. And Matthew really was and continues to be for us a gift from God. You see, my wife, Tonette, was a, a widow. In fact, her, her first husband passed away, uh, well, back in the late 1980s, about the same time her brother, her only sibling, sadly, uh, Nikki, uh, passed away of bone marrow cancer uh, within that same time. And so Tonette didn't know she'd ever get married again, let alone have children. And so Tonette and I met, a uh, wonderful story we'll save for another podcast, but met in the spring of 1992. I proposed to her that August and by February 6th, which just coincidentally happens to be Ronald Reagan's birthday. I often say I, I, I remember Reagan's birthday because it's our wedding anniversary. Tonette correctly notes that I probably remember our wedding anniversary because it's Ronald Reagan's birthday. But either way... The, the bottom line is Tonette and I have, have been together ever since, but it was one of those where we were met in 92, married in 93, and blessed with our firstborn child on, on June 30th of 1994, and that's why for us it was a given that Matthew would, would be his name, and then we were blessed again a year later in July of 95 when we had our, our second blessing, our son Alex. Uh, but when I think about that uh, early on in the, the first pregnancy, uh, Tonette and I went to the doctor and we had the ultrasound in that picture. Back then, they weren't nearly as sophisticated as they are now. Now, now they're like 3D, you can see on your phone, but this was just a, a piece of paper that had the, the image on it. And it was really remarkable uh, because Matthew was turned on his side. You could see the outline of, of, uh, of the baby. You could see his limbs. And, and then you could see Matthew had his hand extended and uh, you could see all four of his fingers, and you could see his thumb, and his thumb was positioned where it looked like, at least according to the ultrasound, that his thumb was in his mouth. So even early on in his pregnancy, he was sucking his thumb. And Tonette and I had both been pro-life long before uh, 
long before that ultrasound image. But but to us, that was just further proof, further evidence in our mind, you know, that this wasn't an organ, it wasn't a tissue, it was anything else other than uh, a, a baby with a heartbeat, uh, and, and it was our son. I've said this before, but I remember arguing when I was in the legislature, uh, part of a debate we had on a bill that would create two penalties uh, if someone uh, hurt and injured not only a mother, but a mother was pregnant, uh, but also her unborn child. And and to make the point when a bunch of very liberal Democrats were trying to argue that this was redundant, we didn't need it, some of the same arguments we hear about protecting in the scenarios I mentioned where a child's actually been born and then they still opt to go forward with an abortion. I remember at the time um, talking, and this was right after Matt was born while Tanette was pregnant with, with Alex, her second son, and I said, you know, this is a horrible example. And it, it was hypothetical. It didn't actually happen, to be clear. But I said, imagine if a drunk driver rammed into our minivan and, and Alec or Matt would have been in the back uh, if this had happened in his car seat. Imagine if, horribly, horrible thing to even think of, but imagine if the car had hit on the passenger side, Tonette, had she been hit, had been injured, and in the process, which unfortunately has happened before to others, um, lost that child. I looked at the uh, the crowd in the state assembly. I particularly looked at some of the more liberal Democrats who'd been arguing against the bill. And I said, think about this for a minute. What kind of card would you send us in that example? Would, would you send us a get well card because Tonette was injured? Or would you send us a sympathy card? Because you know that because of, in that hypothetical example, because of a tragic accident, we would have lost our unborn child. Thankfully, that didn't happen, but in that example, it, it was amazing. That kind of ended the debate because in that one example, that was just God's providence. I, I hadn't thought about it in advance, but as the debate lingered on, uh, that was a great way to to make the point that, uh, that if you were going to send a sympathy card, then how could you argue that this was not, this was not a child, a, a, a living being? And that's really what this is all about. So if anything, the only good that's come out of this, and you see these not just in Virginia, you've seen it in New York State. Most recently we saw it in Rhode Island. These unbelievable, um, unbelievable votes in these very, very Democrat states where they're pushing abortion on demand, not just to the point of the end of the pregnancy, but literally talking about it all the way to the point of, of birth. Um, you know, Years ago we had the debate about partial birth abortion. This takes it even further. And it's why this party, you know, there used to be room for pro-life Democrats. I remember serving with a few in the state assembly back in the 1990s. That's gone. I mean, the, the litmus test is so far in the extreme that Joe Biden, who, as wrong as he is on this issue, at least had one ounce, one sliver of decency left, and, and had still advocated uh, for some time uh, when he was in office uh, to support legislation that said, well, at least at least taxpayers who don't agree uh, with the taking of a life through abortion shouldn't be forced to pay for this position. We shouldn't be using taxpayers' dollars, particularly around the world. And even that, now that he's a candidate for, for president as a Democrat these days, this shows you just how far the left has gone. They're completely out of control on this issue. So that's a little bit of my thoughts about this, uh, the ongoing debate about life, the sanctity of life, and, and just how far the left has gone in this. We come back, I want to talk uh, for a minute or two a little bit about Iran 
and uh, really the impetus of the problem that we have on Iran in today's culture. We'll be right back. On uh, This is Scott Walker on You Can't Recall Courage. Join us and to continue to tell your friends about this podcast. We'll be right back. Hi, Scott Walker, back here on You Can't Recall Courage, our podcast, and this is just our second week. So if you like it, please keep continuing to listen in. We'll post it every Friday morning at 9 a.m. Central Time. We hope you'll tell your friends about it as well. As mentioned, I want to talk for a moment about Iran. And, you know, earlier in the week, there was some talk after the president, President Trump, rightfully pushed even greater economic sanctions on Iran. Uh, there was talk that Iran said, well, they're done with diplomacy. Well, let me be clear. Iran does not understand diplomacy. They only understand power. Uh, this is why when you think back, the actions of former President Barack Obama, along with former Vice President uh, uh, Joe Biden, who I got to tell you, just as an aside for all his talk about his years in foreign relations committee and so forth, this is a guy who consistently has gotten the issues wrong when it comes to foreign policy. But Obama and Biden had this policy of lifting the sanctions on Iran, uh, which many of us said was horrible policy at the time. I'm glad that President Trump has lifted uh, that or removed that policy and reinstated the sanctions and is pushing for even more on top of that. But at the time, by lifting the sanctions in Iran, uh, he just put more power into the hands of one of the largest state sponsors of terrorism in the entire world. You think about it, our strongest ally, Israel, uh, lives in fear of Iran, really an existential threat. When I was there, I was just there recently, I'm going to talk about that as well, but I was just there recently, but I'd been there several times in the past. I remember back in 2015, when I was there, not only talking to Prime Minister Netanyahu, but talking to the leader of the opposition party, the Labor Party, uh, Mr. Herzog, and to others. And it was just almost universal there that, that even, even though they had political differences within the state of Israel, there, were, there was almost complete, nearly consensus when it came to concern over President Obama's attempt to, to put in place a deal with Iran because it's an existential threat. This puts more money not only in their hands, but but as one of the largest state sponsors of terrorism in the world, this really is a threat to Iran because that means more money in the hands of, of groups that Iran funds and supports like Hamas and Hezbollah. And think about the track record at the time. This is why not only was Israel concerned, but oftentimes, and again, I won't get too far in the weeds on this, but people don't understand even within the Arab world, you've, you've got Shiites and Sunnis. And so many of the Arab countries uh, tended to create this, this unusual alliance, at least out of concern over Iran, uh, between Israel and other Arab countries out there because they knew just how f far Iran would go. This is also at the time, remember, Barack Obama drew a red line and, and he allowed it to be crossed. I just can't believe when I think back, he called ISIS a JV squad, Yemen a success story, and Iran a place we can do business with. Now, let me be clear, Iran, Iran is never a place to do business with. Iran is the problem. And this deal that Obama and Biden pushed through only empowered them. America should have never removed the pressure through the previous sanctions. And I'm absolutely glad that this president, President Trump, got us out of it. Uh, this is a country that hasn't changed. I, I remember back when I was a kid, back in late 1979, going to 1980, my brother David and I would tie yellow, yellow ribbons at our house during the 444 days that 52 Americans were held hostage. One of those was a guy named Kevin Hermanick 
the youngest Marine. He was uh, raised in Oak Creek, Wisconsin, lives right now. Actually, I just saw him not too long ago at the Wisconsin Right to Life Dinner, lives up in north central Wisconsin, Sean Duffy's district. Uh, but he knows, uh, just like those other hostages know, uh, that this is not a country to do business with. This is not a country that understands diplomacy. Remember, they let the Iran let the hostages go. When did they do it? They did it on the very first day that Ronald Reagan took office. Why? I, I have to believe uh, because they understand power and they understood that President Reagan, just like President Trump has done, was going to restore the rightful power of the United States of America as the leader in the free world and the leader for freedom not only in America but for freedom-loving people around the world. Iran just does not uh, understand diplomacy. They only understand the power of countries like the United States, and we have the power and need to continue to use it to cripple their economy and force an end to their efforts to develop nuclear weapons, nuclear weapons that could be used, obviously, against Israel, right, in that, that same uh, region there, but, but eventually us. And they've stated as much. They clearly have made their intentions against Israel known, but, but uh, for many of the radical jihadists that we see, they, they've made it clear that their ultimate goal is the United States of America as well. Well, I, I got the feel and sense that a few weeks ago, yet again, when I was in Israel. I, I'd been there, as I mentioned, a couple times before, and it's always good to go. We, uh, we go to Jerusalem and to the old city. I actually went to the new embassy. Uh, not only did we go to the new embassy, which was opened a little bit more than a year ago, but we were the first delegation to meet with uh, the United States ambassador to Israel in his quarters. I, I'd been to his quarters in Tel Aviv before, but now in his home on site at the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem. Really remarkable. And just as an aside, I, I can't even fathom. I wrote a column about this a few weeks ago in the Washington Times where I said this was not only the right thing to do, but politically smart uh, for President Trump. I mean, just imagine, can you, can you think of any other country in the world who, instead of putting their, their embassy to the United States in Washington, D.C., would put it in New York City? Now, many of them have Council General's offices there. I understand that New York's an important city maybe even the financial capital of the world. But, but if you want to do business in the United States, you put an embassy in our capital, which is Washington, D.C. Why any country, including one like the United States, which has in Israel the, our greatest ally in the Middle East and arguably one of our greatest allies in the world, why we would have continued to put our, our embassy in Tel Aviv instead of Jerusalem, where the, the government is. That's the seat of government. That's where the prime minister's at and works. That's where the Knesset, which is the parliament, the legislative branch, and that's where the Supreme Court of Israel is at. It's just remarkable to me. And now that President Trump had the courage to follow through on that. And remember, you had Democrats and Republicans alike back in 1995 vote for an act to call for, actually require the embassy to be placed in Jerusalem. Other presidents, both parties have talked about this before, but, but President Trump, to his credit, was the first to actually follow through on that, which I think is also, it's the right thing to do. But politically, it's one of those things where you say, well, maybe that only appeals to a small segment. I actually think it's really important for the larger electorate. This is just another reminder. And even if you don't always like everything the president says or exactly how he says it or maybe a tweet here or there, it's just a fundamental a reminder this is a guy who follows through on his promises and he actually gets the job done. You know, Washington, D.C. is full, full of people who say all the right things but don't do squat. I actually kind of like having a president who, even though I don't always agree with the exact wording maybe he uses, but actually gets things done. And, and that's why I'm going to talk about this uh, in further podcasts as well. 
what I think has got to be a central part of his re-election efforts. But when we were in Israel, we, we saw it firsthand that Iran is this existential threat. This is a country that, that is really very close. Uh, we were up in the Golan Heights. We could see Syria off in the distance. Uh, you could see Lebanon. We went along the Jordan Valley. We've been to many places before, and it's always good to go to the old city and the Western Wall and the Temple Mount to go down to the Western Wall tunnels or in the City of David excavation. It's really just, I, I'm always blown away when I'm there. But we also, and we also obviously see as a Christian, I wanted to see where Golgotha, Calvary was at, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and, and to see all those sites, to see the Stations of the Cross. <coughs> Excuse me, but on this trip, we got a chance to go to Bethlehem, which is surrounded uh, by control by the Palestinian Authority. And uh, we also went in an area that's often not gone to, at least by people uh, like myself, either governors, former governors, members of Congress, uh, but that is uh, Hebron, where Sarah was buried and then Abraham after, and it's where the matriarchs and patriarchs are. It's really remarkable to see that. And remember, for I think thousands of years, a couple thousand years, Jews weren't allowed to go there. Finally, after the the war in 1967, uh, that was freed up. It used to be that I think Jewish people could only go up to, the I believe it was the fifth step. Now it's open to the public. Uh, they didn't take off the Arabic. It's still there. And it's actually an often good reminder when you think about the tensions there that Muslims, Jewish, uh, Jews, Muslims, and Christians all claim um, connection as descendants uh, from Abraham. So it's, a, it's an important reminder to physically go there and to see what's going on and to remember that all the hype and hysteria you often see in the United Nations uh, that uh, Israel right now makes places like this completely open. Uh, similar when you think about access to the holy sites, uh, the Western Wall, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, all is open to the general public. We went by where the, uh, uh, where the mosque and the Golden Dome is, and, and those are really largely limited uh, to, uh, to Muslims to go in and out there. So it's, it's just interesting to see uh, the challenges that are going on. And we could see, uh, as I've seen before, just the, the intensity of the threat of terrorism. And Iran is at the top of the list. And you see it not only there, but you see it in, in, uh, in our hemisphere as well, where story after story talking about Iran defending Venezuela and the challenges going on there as well. So some interesting things on the horizon. Uh, last thing I wanted to bring up, you know, Bernie Sanders had to join the fray, kind of like Elizabeth Warren. You know, they have all these ideas about how to spend money and not a lot of ideas about how to make it all balance out. But uh, Bernie was trending the other day with hashtag cancel student debt. Uh, my question was simple. With, with the national, with the U.S. debt being over $22 trillion, and as much as student loan debt is an issue, I, I actually think the answer is to do more to keep tuition down in the first place. It's why I'm glad that we froze tuition year after year and why Republicans in the state legislature pushing in Wisconsin, at least, for two more years of a, of a tuition freeze. Why I think we should tie in student loan debt assistance to universities doing more to keep their college tuition down in the first place instead of asking the taxpayers, many of whom had their own student loan debt they paid out over the years, to pick up more of it. But my simple tweet the other day was to say, you know, with this hashtag cancel student debt, maybe we should figure out a way to get the Congress to figure out how to uh, to eliminate the the uh, the U.S. debt out there. Like I said, it's over $22 trillion. Better way to think about it is a baby born today anywhere in America inherits over $67,000 worth of that national debt. When I was born, it was a little over 1600 
Uh, today it's 67000 That's a real issue. It's why I'm pushing to have a balanced budget passed. It's the only way. You see it state after state. That's Some states are better than others, but state after state has requirements to have balanced budgets. We need to have that in the federal government going forward. So anyway, that's, uh, that's what I've got for this week. Uh, in the future, we're going to talk about the 2020 election, President Trump's chances, where the key states are, talk a little bit about uh, the uh, debates, uh, the ongoing debates, and, and the ever-growing list of Democrats running for president, and plenty of other good things that come up along the way. Again, I mentioned my son Matthew's turning uh, 25 this Sunday on June 30th, so happy birthday uh, to Matt. Well, we're proud of him and his brother Alex. I hope that uh, you'll continue to listen in. We're, we're just getting started, so along the way, follow us at uh, Scott Walker on Twitter or go to facebook.com slash Walker. Go to scottwalker.com. That's where the podcast is posted every Friday at 9 a.m. Pass it on. Put it on social media. Encourage others to do so along the way. And if you've got some ideas for us from future topics, let us know on social media as well. Until next week, we'll see you at 9 a.m. next Friday.